Hey everybody, good morning. Welcome to our online Bible study. We have new Bible studies every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. on our Facebook page and our website, faithonhill.com. Every Thursday, we premiere new episodes of our 20-minute Bible study podcast that's available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on video on our Facebook page. Um, We've been studying Mark's gospel, and chapter, uh, chapter 14 is a, is a clear break. It's a clear change of Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and he's, it's been sort of a continuing story of him entering Jerusalem, triumphant as the Messiah. He's been teaching in the temple courts, but now it's a clear change and a break. And, and the narrative is going directly to the cross. We studied in Mark chapter 12 a few weeks ago. And Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he responded, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And this week, I believe... In chapter 14, we see that played out in real life. This is real worship. What real worship, what real worship looks like in the real world. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Now at the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So the the motivation is to get Jesus out of the way because of his great popularity. And if we do it during the festival, if we do it publicly, when all of these crowds are here, They're going to riot against us and they'll revolt. And we don't want that. We want Jesus out of the way so that the status quo that maintains our power and position stays in place. So that's what the setting is, the backdrop. And it says, while while he was in Bethany, verse 3, reclining at the table of the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, Jesus is at Bethany, which we talked about the other week. It's it's like if Jerusalem was on Mount Talbert, and then you came down and came back up to our hill where the church is. It's that idea that he's on this village on a hill close to Jerusalem, but he's not staying in Jerusalem because he knows of these plots to arrest and kill him. And while he is there at the home of Simon the leper, so he's at the home of somebody who Jesus has healed. This man was a leper, but Jesus has healed him. A woman came with this alabaster jar of perfume. Now, remember, what did we say? What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, 
with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And it is in this moment that this woman worships Jesus with all of her heart and her soul. All of her heart and her soul. When we say heart and soul, it's this idea of internal fortitude. You know, we say, I just feel it in my gut. I know that this is real. It's not a mental thing. It's not a a physical thing. It's a gut knowledge. It's within my heart and soul. It's to my very core. Some things to note about this woman's act of worship, because this is not how we worship God. How do we worship God? Well, we worship God when we sing songs or we pray or um, we do some sort of act of service. But culturally, and, and there's a reason I think that Mark is being very descriptive, um, because remember, Mark was writing this gospel in the city of Rome, in, in, in what's now Italy. So perhaps this spikenard uh, perfume was something they weren't familiar with. Uh, it was something that was more common among Eastern Mediterranean or, or Mideast cultures. So for them, this might not have made sense either. But in that culture, this was an act of honor, an act of adoration, an act of praise. Some things to note. It was challenging for the religious people because Let's keep reading here. I want want to read some of the responses. Verse 4 says, Some of those present were indignant to one another. Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And by the way, this is recorded in multiple gospels. This this woman's act of worship has been proclaimed throughout the world, just as Jesus said. Then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, one of the twelve went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This woman's act of worship was challenging to the religious people because it broke cultural norms. We can't understand this because there was... I mean, it would be weird if, if you or me were at dinner and then somebody came and had a jar and they broke it open and there was this really fragrant, powerful aroma of a perfume and they, then they took it and they poured it over our heads. That would be weird because we don't have a cultural reference point for it. But what was weird for them in their cultural reference point was that a woman had interrupted the men while they were eating. One of my favorite shows was uh, Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain's show. And there was an episode where Anthony Bourdain went to um, Madagascar. And they went to this very poor village and all of the people are there and they were to eat first because in their culture... The honored guest ate first, and then the men, and then the women, and then the children. And, and so uh, Anthony Bourdain, and I, I believe it was Darren uh, 
Afronovsky, who's the, uh, the director of the movie Noah and a few you know, other movies, but he, um, they were there and they were very concerned the children need to eat. And, and they were promised, no, no, the children will eat, but this is how it is. Because in that culture, there was a segregation and there was a hierarchy. In, in the culture, in Jesus's day, the men would gather together and they would eat and they would have their conversation and their social dialogue and whatever. And the women were not to interrupt them. It's not right. It's not how it should be. It's just how it was. And so to have a woman interrupt the men so that she could worship God would have just been shocking to them. And we've seen that over the years, right? If you know history, there was a guy named William Booth. He founded a group you've probably heard of called the Salvation Army. When we think of the Salvation Army, right, we think of guys dressed like Santa Claus ringing the bells. But what one of the things that the Salvation Army did in the early days was they would have these brass bands, trombone and trumpet and tuba and the whole thing, and they would go on the street corners and they would play music with these brass bands. And in England, they still have brass bands. And I know in other parts of America, the Salvation Army still has the bands, but, um, but it was a big thing. And for us, right, we just see people dressed a little funny in these old-timey uniforms playing old-timey songs in a brass band. But back in William Booth's day, a brass band was, was intense. It was like heavy metal. It, it, was like, it was like straight out of Compton. You know, it was, it was um, really intense music. It was the music of, of, of youth. It was not what we think of as refined, you know. We think of, oh, a, a brass band, a trumpet, and a, a French horn. That's a very, ooh, very refined thing. It was not back then. And people said, how dare you do that? Because it defied their cultural norms. But William Booth was trying to reach people for the gospel. In my parents' day, uh, a bunch of hippies were playing folk rock, right? And now, like, we go back and we listen and, and you hear, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to, like, Bread or America, some of these, like, 70s, late 60s, early 70s California sound bands. And we don't think anything of it, right? Like, it's really kind of, like, vanilla, safe music. But, like, back then, that was rock and roll. And how dare you bring that worldly music into the church? And it's nothing new. This is always been the case. Even in our own day, you know, there's people that, um, you know, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, and the Sonic Flood, and Chris Tomlin, and Jars of Clay, and they love that. And now they hear the stuff that, that young Christians are, are, the music they're making now, and they go, oh, it's terrible. Because we have these cultural norms that we develop that we're safe and comfortable with, and all the while, there's somebody just trying to worship Jesus the way they know how. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to die. And this woman is, is, is anointing my body for burial, which is a thing in their culture. And I've told, the, he's told the disciples, right? Jesus has repeatedly told them that the Messiah was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And they just sh shut their, their ears off. They stopped. This woman's act of worship challenged the religious because it broke their cultural norms. Let me be honest. 
culturally religious Americans are not used to somebody preaching against their sin. They're used to people preaching against the sins of seculars or, or culturally uh, progressive people or whatever, but to preach against their sins. It also challenged the secular people because it was a thing that was focused on the kingdom of heaven. What was the indignance about in verse 4? Well, that was expensive perfume. And that expensive perfume could have been sold and we could have given it to the poor, is what they say. Now, John's gospel tells us that it was actually Judas himself who was leading this outcry. And, and that Judas didn't actually care about the poor. That Judas was the guy who held the, the money bag, the purse for, for the disciples. And that John said, no, he'd steal from it. You know, if you put, if you put uh, 10 bucks in, Judas would skim off a couple bucks, you know. And so Judas is like, hey, we could have given that to the poor, but really, you know, they would have sold it for like $1,000 and Judas would have given, you know, 500 to the poor. Oh yeah, I gave it all away, right? How much did you sell it for, Judas? 500 bucks, I gave it all to the poor. And he's got 500 bucks sitting in his pocket. One of the things that has happened repeatedly in the last several years is that secular people have, de- have cried out, demanded that churches lose their tax-exempt status. In fact, um, I wrote a paper on this for school. I really looked into all of the information. And these people are crying out. Churches take all this money from people and they get tax exemption and that's wrong. We got to remove it. And, and then during lockdown, I remember uh, people saying, you know, there are all these churches with big buildings and they should, you know, we were opening up, remember we were opening up like field hospitals um, in, the, in the Portland Convention Center and down at the fairgrounds in Salem. And they were saying, well, why don't churches open up their hospitals? And I, I remember I, I knew I one friend of mine who's not a Christian, very, very uh, uh, secularist, very progressive. And he was saying all this. And I said, well, first of all, they don't want our building. Um, you know, we've, we've been in contact with some people with the schools and with uh, the government, and they, they don't want us. Um, but we'd be willing if, if the county had called us and said, we need, your bu- we need your building for those purposes, we would have done it. And we've, we've been open. Hey, the Red Cross has done multiple blood drives here this summer. Um, we've, we've offered help to the local schools. Again, they ha- largely have not wanted our help. to do something that's kingdom-focused. How dare you spend all that money on a gospel outreach? Don't you know that there are people who are starving? Because all that they see, if you're secular, all you see is right here and now because you don't have a look or a view to the future, to eternity. We see the coming kingdom of heaven and they can only see these dying kingdoms of this world. And she did something that was offensive to the passive because it was a worship in totality. And here's what I mean by that. There are a lot of people who like faith, they like religion, but why are you so intense about it? They, you know, I, yeah, I like, I like the, the uplifting music I hear on the fish. I, I, I like an encouraging sermon, something that really like picks up my spirits. You know, we're in, we're in troubled times. 
And, and I like a good encouraging message, and you know, especially if the preacher's funny and he doesn't preach too long. And she didn't just open a jar of perfume and take some out and anoint Jesus. She broke it. It all had to be used. It was a total commitment to this act of worship. And people who are passive, people who like a safe and respectable faith, do not like that. To worship God with all of your heart and all of your soul. And people say, no, it's got to fit our, our cultural religious norms No, it can't be too kingdom of God focused. No, it can't be too total. You need to chill it out a little bit. And in verse 10, we're told that there is some direct link between this act of worship and Judas's decision to betray Jesus. Now, over the years, there's been all kinds of speculation as to why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's only speculation. And and I... I'm always really hesitant when people start getting into the realm of speculation. But we do know, we don't know specifics, but we know that there was some link to this moment and then Judas goes out and betrays Jesus. And there is a dividing line. To talk about God is one thing, but to name the name of Jesus I remember being in a conversation. I was in downtown Seattle. I was actually, if, if you followed, you know, the Chaz or the Chop, I was right in the middle of where the Chaz and the Chop was, but it was like, you know, 15 years ago. And I remember I had gotten in a conversation with a guy who, you know, was just was on the street and we started talking and I was sharing the good news with him and he was fine and he's tracking. And then I mentioned, I had only mentioned God. And then I mentioned the name of Jesus. And I thought that guy was going to punch me in the face. Everything changed. He literally clenched and cocked his fist back. Like, I, I, I wasn't just like, oh, he's getting a little angry. I think he's going to hit me. Like, he had, he had pulled his fist back like he was going to throw a punch. You can mention God. You can talk about faith. But when Jesus is named, when Jesus is declared, something changes. And there is some link between this woman's total act of worship and a line in the sand where Judas said, no more, I'm, I'm done with this. To worship God with all of your heart and your soul, but also to worship God with all of your mind. Let's skip ahead to verse 27. And Jesus said, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. There's a mental component to our faith. Peter believed in his heart, but his mind, his mind still wanted control. And Jesus diagnosed the problem in verse 38 when he said, Peter, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. 
there are a lot of people who, do you remember the, the story of the sower? The farmer who had bad aim or bad eyesight? Take your pick. And he goes, and instead of planting his seeds in neat, orderly rows, he just starts scattering the seed everywhere. And some of the seed lands in good soil, but some of the seed lands in shallow soil, and it takes root. But then when the sun comes out and, and the heat of the day scorches the ground, the plant dies because it has no depth. There are those who have professed faith in Jesus, who have an emotional experience in a church gathering, but there's no depth. And I believe that part of that is a mental component, that, that we have not surrendered. We might have surrendered our emotions in that moment, but we haven't surrendered our, our mind, our will. There are people, you know, I want to stop, I want to stop this sin. I want to be free of this bondage. Well, okay, but then what are you going to do? Are you going to put the filtering apps and software on your computer and on your phone? I, I, I want to, I you know, uh, be free. Okay, are you going to, to do the things that you're going to need to do? Are you going to delete those phone numbers from your phone? These are mental choices. On the positive side, I know there are people who have uh, a personal uh, thing against, uh, against online giving because they believe that uh, setting up a, a reoccurring uh, donation or payment is, is somehow less worshipful. To me, it's like, no, I, you make a choice. I'm mentally choosing to make this my first priority when I'm setting up my budget. That to worship God with your mind. And here's Peter and the other disciples and Jesus is telling them, this is how it is, guys. Here's the reality. And they say, no, it's not true. Because they might have had faith in their hearts, but they had not yet given up their will. They had not yet surrendered and submitted their minds to God. What does the Bible say? That we need to have our hearts renewed and our minds transformed. To worship God with all of our mind is to submit ourselves. And sometimes that in itself is an act of faith. There are things in the Bible, I'm going to be honest, there are things in the Bible that I have a hard time with. And maybe they're different than the things in the Bible that you have a hard time with. But we all have things where we, we emotionally, in our souls, we believe in God, but to submit our, our, our minds, our wills to the word of God in that area is hard. And that's Peter and the disciples' struggle. Everybody talks about Peter's failure, and that's true. But all of the disciples failed Jesus that night. All of the disciples said, we will not fall away. And when they came to arrest Jesus, spoiler alert, all of them ran. It's one thing to worship God with all of your heart and your soul and you, you just get some emotional experience, some act of service, but to surrender our minds and our will to God. To be faithful in a consistent direction over a long period of time. The spirit can be willing, but if our flesh is weak, And we must worship God with all of our strength. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, 
Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So remember, uh, Mark is writing in Rome to a largely, there would have been Jews as part of the church, but he was writing to an increasingly Gentile audience. So he's explaining these things to them. Verse 13, he sent out two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. I, I'm very curious when I get to heaven, did this man just have a sense from God that he was supposed to prepare a room? Did he have a room that was ready for his use? And then when Jesus said, I need that, he had to worship God and submit himself to God's change of plans? I don't know. Verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were reclining at the table and eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, we don't do a lot of communal eating in America. Like, you dish up your plate, and then it's your plate, right? Somebody doesn't come and eat off your plate. That's weird to us. I love Ethiopian food. It's one of my favorite things to eat. And they eat kind of communally. They have this thing uh, in Jaya bread, which is it's spongy and kind of sour, like a sourdough. Um, it looks sort of like a savory pancake. It's wonderful. And they'll put up a pile of uh, a stewed vegetable or a curry or a lentil. And they put it in kind of the middle and you rip off pieces of the bread and then you use the bread to grab from the dish and you eat it like that, kind of as a family. And that's why there was reasons, that there were rules about hand washing and who you could eat with because the idea is that I, we're all eating from the same plate. And that's a very intimate thing. And so for Jesus to say, it's the one who dips into the bowl with me. So they had this, this flat bread and there was a bowl maybe with some kind of sauce and they would dip in, and that's, you know, the meal was it's almost like chips and salsa, you know, but they're dipping in. And that idea of this intimacy, this, this communal aspect of the meal. So he's saying, one of the people closest to me is going to betray me. Verse 22, or sorry, verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man that betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he had given it to his disciples, and he said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now I'm going to say this about communion. Communion is a symbol. This meal 
The bread and the cup is a symbol to remind us what Jesus has done for us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed on our behalf. I don't think we need to be legalistic about it. The bread that they would have eaten was a flat bread, no yeast. Yeast in the Bible is a symbol of sin, and Jesus went to the cross sinless. His body was broken, though he deserved none of it. So that's why we stick to a flat bread for the symbolism. But we're not legalistic about it. We don't serve wine in our communion. And, and if you, I'm be clear about this. Jesus and the 12 disciples in this meal were drinking alcoholic wine. And there are all kinds of stories that people try to invent to try to downplay this or, or wish this away. And if, it, if that's hard for you to hear, I, I apologize because I know that that is hard for some. But we use grape juice because we know that for some it's an issue. And I don't think God is at all concerned about that. And I know there are churches that they get that big hunking loaf of bread and everybody rips off a big piece. And I personally would prefer the symbolism of the bread and the cup as we do it. But I don't freak out about it when somebody does it a different way. I, I have literally taken part of a communion service where all that was available was a tortilla and some tang. Yes, tang, the orange drink that astronauts drink, right? Because the, the important thing is in our hearts. And so we understand the importance of communion. At the same time, we're not legalistic about it. Now, in verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And Jesus took Peter and James and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Worship God with all of your heart and your soul. Worship God with all your mind. And finally, worship God with all of your strength. Going into the city was an act of strength. Right? There was a physical action. They had to walk from wherever they were into the city of Jerusalem. And they had to go and do some really boring, mundane work. This was not like the high point of exciting ministry in the life of the disciples. They had to go and prepare a place for a meal. Sometimes serving God is not big and exciting. It's not a big emotional rush. 
like the woman breaking the perfume over Jesus' head. It's not a mental decision like you're thinking deeply about theology and doctrine. Sometimes it's just swinging a hammer. Sometimes it's just physically going somewhere and doing something. To worship God with all of my strength. Remember that they had not mentally submitted their will to the words of God where Jesus had said to them that you will betray me. They hadn't submitted their minds to it. And because they hadn't submitted their minds, they didn't devote their strength. Jesus said, watch and pray, Simon Peter, so that you won't fall into temptation. I think if, don't you think that if Simon had known what was to come, where again, spoiler alert, he's going to betray Jesus. Don't you think he might have then put his strength into staying up? Maybe he was falling asleep because he was sitting. What if he had just physically stood up and walked around and prayed in that garden and, and doing what he could to stay awake? Going into the city and keeping watch were both acts of worship. And if our definition of worship is just limited to singing together on a Sunday morning, we have a very weak understanding of what worship is. Worship is not just in our heart and our soul. It's not just in our emotions. It's not just in our minds. Sometimes it's physically in our strength. What can I do for other people? What can I do for God? What is some, uh, something God has given me to do that I can physically accomplish? Worship, verse 36 Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did not want to physically, did not want to endure what he was going to endure. Jesus will be beaten. He will be spit upon. He will be abused. And, and there are different scholars that have, you know, if, if you follow what the standard pattern of the abuse that a Roman soldier would put on somebody who was being imprisoned and flogged and maybe even crucified, Jesus very possibly endured far more abuse and humiliation than, than we have an understanding of. I'm trying to be sensitive here because I know, you know, this, we try to keep things PG, but if you, if you, you can Google these things and, and you can ask me on my own and I'll, I'll tell you about it, but Jesus went through horrific things and he knew what was coming. Crucifixion was a public execution. Jesus would have seen people crucified. Anyone living under Roman rule would have seen it. He knew physically what was coming, but he also knew spiritually what was coming. He knew that the sins of the whole world were being placed on his shoulders. He knew the agony that he was to endure. And yet he submitted himself to the Father. And how can we as Jesus' servants, as his disciples, do any less but to submit ourselves to the Father? And next week we'll see how Jesus goes and faces his betrayer and goes to the cross on our behalf. Jesus is able to completely save us from sin. I believe that. Jesus is able to completely save us from sin. I don't believe 
that we are cursed in this life to always be failing. Does that mean that, that when we fail that God's grace is no longer there? Of course, we live in the grace of God. But I, I have hope that Jesus will completely do the work in my life and in your life. Jesus gives Christians the Holy Spirit. The difference between Peter here and the Peter that you read about in the book of Acts is that he had the Holy Spirit of God in his heart. And if you are not a Christian, the invitation is to become one, to submit yourself to God, to trust in what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. But for those of us who are Christians, we have a great hope that God's Holy Spirit comes into and upon the life of Christians. And we, those who lack boldness, we see become bold. Those who lack love, we see have love abundantly. Those who lack righteousness and holiness before God, we see God change their hearts. And many of us, we'd say the same thing. Yeah, I was this way and I came to faith in Jesus and he forgave all of my sins, but he didn't just leave me there. He empowered me with his Holy Spirit and my life is not the same. It's better. Jesus is able to save us completely. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to all Christians. Now, I want to say, maybe you've never experienced that work in your life. There is some mystery here. Some Christians, like the first Christians in Acts chapter 2, or the first Gentile believers in Acts chapter 8, some Christians the Holy Spirit just comes upon them and it's like seemingly out of nowhere. By the way, that was my experience. The Holy Spirit just came upon me, was 14 years old, out of nowhere. Some Christians, and you see this with Paul when he was converted on the road to Damascus, uh, you see this with others. Uh, as Paul, Paul speaks about this with Timothy, that it happened through what, what's called the laying on of hands. Other Christians pray for you, pray over you to receive what God has for you. And maybe where you're at right now, you, you just turn to the person that you, your, your spouse, your parents, your kids, and you say, can you pray for me that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit? And maybe you were filled with the Holy Spirit years ago, but you say, it feels like I need something fresh and new. I believe that that's something available. And finally, Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. Lord, how can I worship you with all my heart and soul this week? Get some Christian music on your, on your music player, on your phone, on, on your smart speaker, whatever it is, and just sing the praises of God. Pray, read the word. Lord, how can I anoint you with all of my heart and my soul? How can you worship God with your mind? I believe part of that is reading the Bible growing in our understanding. If you want a recommendation for a book or something about uh, how I can grow in my faith, I can understand more fully the, the theology, the doctrines of God, I'd be happy to give you that. But maybe it's just submitting your mind to God and saying, I'm going to take the steps that I need to mentally to, to set up my life in a way that worships God. And with all your strength, I don't know what God's given you to do. But Jesus is worthy of our worship. And so whether we worship him by swinging a hammer or taking a drive somewhere or getting up and going someplace, however it is that we are called to worship God this week, I pray that we would say yes and amen because Jesus is worthy of it all.
He has conquered sin and death. He has set us free from the bondages of sin. He has forgiven. He has wiped away all of our evil, all of our past transgressions. He cleanses us of all iniquity. And He fills us with His Holy Spirit so that we can live in His purposes. He's worthy of all of our worship. We praise His name this morning. Amen.